This is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Tech story is front and centre. A lot of people are saying, no thank you, step back. You're saying, get in, why? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. The dollar a little bit stronger today. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable. An historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With Jonathan Ferro and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London. You are listening to The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. It's just gone 5pm alongside me in London, Guy Johnson. Myself, Jonathan Farrow here in New York and a nice little rally to close out the week here in the United States, Guy. Yeah, except for Kraft, which isn't having that good a day, really, is it? An on amazing two, on, story. On two fronts. Um, the second front you might not have seen yet, um, and maybe Charlie Pellet will run us through that in just a moment. Uh, okay, now you've piqued my interest. Charlie Pellet, tell me everything. Well, here's what's going on. Some of the stories that we're following for you. Kraft Heinz shares, they are plunging. Right now, the stock down roughly 28%. Company just might need a new recipe. The packaged food giant reporting a troika of bad news. Profit that missed estimates, a $15.4 billion write-down on assets. And that SEC subpoena, all of that combining to send its shares plummeting. A plunge that has wiped out more than $15 billion in market value. European Union Trade Commissioner Cecilia Malmström says a transatlantic trade deal could be achieved before year-end, stressing a readiness to work speedily as the bloc tries to keep at bay the threat of U.S. automotive tariffs. And sources say Societe Generale is drawing up plans to cut jobs at its investment bank and find a partner for its cash equity business in a bid to offset increasing cost pressure from regulation. That is the latest from the news yeah, desk. Yeah, but Charlie, you left out a story, didn't you? Uh, go, fill us in, Jonathan <laughs> Farrow. <laughs> Robert Kraft, the owner of the New England Patriots, reportedly charged with soliciting a prostitute in Florida. Um, that news breaking just in the last couple of minutes. And two, to put this in context, too, he is the owner of the New England Patriots. He is. Which, which is, it is just an Not amazing story. Not to be confused story. with Kraft Foods and Kraft Times. I, I was just, I was just <laughs> definitely beginning to wonder about that. But this is, this is the team that just won the Super Bowl. That's, That's right. Yep. That is right. Breaking news. I'm not sure how you follow on from that. He was having a good year up until, I assume, the last week or so. Uh, just innocent until proven guilty. These are only charges These at charges, this point. Absolutely. Just bring in the news for our for our listeners, Charlie. Yep, exactly. All, all right. We will catch you at the bottom of the hour. I have no doubt about that. Charlie <laughs> Pellet will be back. We can move on, Guy. We can get back to the markets. Okay. Um, I, I'm just trying to wonder where to start now. Um, I have to say, though, it is a lovely evening here in London. I'm just going to point that out. You're very to happy with the weather, aren't you? It's, a, it's an absolutely beautiful... I've just done an interview with a guy up in Scotland, who, uh, and the weather up there, as my grandmother would say, looks a little dreich. And I understand it's still a little chilly over in New York, but spring has definitely sprung here in London Yeah, today, it's not great, I'm, although I have to say it's a better end to the week here in New York. It was a rough couple of days. We had some snow, um, several flurries of snow through the week, but it's got better. Um, things are not thawing out when it comes to the Brexit story. Um, there was some suggestion that maybe Theresa May was jetting down for a little bit of sun in Sharm el-Sheikh this weekend uh, and that she would be uh, able to uh, thaw relations with the EU and, and generate some sort of breakthrough on the Irish backstop. That doesn't appear to be happening. Where are we with the Brexit process? Are we still on track for a, for a last-minute showdown? Marcus Ashworth from Bloomberg Opinion uh, is joining us now in the studio um, last time I spoke to you, Marcus, about this, you said that Theresa May was playing a blinder. Are you still of that view? Yes. Oh, sorry, you want to say more? Uh, yes, I am. I think the reason why is that she's holding her nerve. 
she is uh people have suddenly worked out but by her not giving anything away to anyone you know the poker skill set that is very much needed um which she clearly didn't seem to have at all to begin with i.e calling article 50 uh and allowing the the eu to sort of dominate the proceedings and and the agenda um at this sort of nitty-gritty last bit of the, of the negotiation she is she has been much more uh skillful and uh you know particularly with uh, three of her mps leaving which actually makes makes no real difference because they would have voted against probably her deal anyway or and or they might vote for this deal regardless whether they're in or out of the party depending on where, how it comes across but they were always going to be voting against a no deal breakfast a brexit and making it tougher or breakfast in breakfast as well definitely <laughs> why does everyone always make that mistake we've all been uh, guilty of it brexit i've just done that breakfast uh, is that yeah. the first time I want, I want to know what a no deal breakfast looks like yeah <laughs> so Marcus, we, don't want to, we definitely don't want no deal brexit we can all agree on that scrambled to yeah. determine whether she is playing a blinder, I need to understand what her objective is. What is her objective, Marcus? Getting her deal through um, and uh, therefore being seen to achieve the impossible whilst literally, you know, half if not more of Parliament are going out of their way to make it impossible for her. They're trying to get her to take no deal Brexit off the table, which is the only negotiating tactic we've got against the European Union and tying her hand behind the bag and stamping on her foot at the same time. So she's not got any help from either within or without her party. The uh, opposition Labour Party are keep on making noises about a second referendum, which is absolutely the last thing she wants. Um, and indeed, the only real power she's ever sort of had is the possibility of calling a general election. But that indeed, indeed would, would see her instantly kicked out of, the, of, of, her, of her party and her, her premiership, even though technically they can't do it for a year. There, there will be such insurrection against her. So she's in a very difficult situation. And I think she seems to be getting some signs of, 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 of rapprochement from Europe. There are signs, you know, they're, they're waxing waning, and the moment it's looking a bit more off than on, but it was certainly looking better for her this week than it has done for a while in the sense of actually getting some form of codicil. That, that issue of the election is interesting. There's a suggestion from the, from the ERG, the European Research Group, that it would no longer back, or maybe 15 to 20 members would no longer back the government business if she were to delay Brexit. Is, is a Brexit delay a base case scenario now? Certainly increasingly, talking to people, it does seem to be. Uh, okay. so I'm just wondering uh, how those two things... A, a technical together. delay for up to three months, purely okay. to get some legislation through. So a technical delay is okay, you one, think? Once we've agreed a deal, right. pre-March 29, a deal agreed, but then a delay to get, you know, okay. money shy out of the way... That's not. I don't think is an issue. I think the IG would, would 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 be sort of fine with that. A delay without any form of deal achieved and complete mayhem. I think that's what they're talking about. So they're they're trying to counteract the people pushing for ruling out a no deal at all and and extending because extending in that way is exactly pushing for a second referendum, which is quite the opposite of what both the Labour and the Tory manifestos were. And what, in essence, Theresa May has always stuck firm to, that her responsibility is to bring Brexit. So, Marcus, if we're struggling with a withdrawal agreement, what does it say about our ability to put together an agreement about the future relationship? Um, well, uh, one could easily say nothing, but I think the practical reality we all know is that if it's, if it's gone this badly so far, what can we possibly expect to get out of um, the EU when we've therefore paid them the £39 billion and indeed... Uh, rolled over on pretty much every single thing down the line uh, as they've seen fit and we approved their point that 
in essence, leaving uh, the European Union is not a good and clever thing, uh, and therefore keeping the, their Grand Project alive. So I wouldn't think that we could expect uh, any easier time. And some, a lot of people, in fact, say that this is the easy bit, getting the withdrawal agreement and the divorce, you know, sort of details is the simple bit. It's the future relationship, which is much, much harder. And of course, it's not an event so much as a process. And uh, I think we've seen that this is going to be a uh, long and very drawn out. And, and e even any agreed uh, transition period is going to be for several years. And it's, you know, this is not... Uh, uh, and it's just that it's your holding period where effectively nothing really happens and it's it's it makes it this this could drag out well into the next decade if you read the irish press there is some kind of there's a growing feeling that the, the brits are trying to bully the irish and we're about to see the tariff structure in the no deal brexit being published well the gove's comments were were very interesting he's apparently had a uh, uh, in cabinet fight with a chancellor where the chancellor wants to have no tariffs and, and, and completely sort of play the uh, we're open for business come do you know come take all yeah. your cheap food into the UK, which obviously would, would hurt certain farmers very hard, whereas Gove is going the other way around, which in some sense is would hit the Irish farming industry the hardest of all, and perhaps that is an, uh, an evidence of some form of bullying, should we say. Okay, Marcus is going to stick with us. Marcus Jashworth joining us from Bloomberg Opinion. Mario Draghi has been speaking uh, down in Bologna. We should probably spend a little bit of time focusing on what's happening uh, with the European economy. Increasingly, investors getting worried, even within Europe, about the problems uh, that the bloc faces. We'll talk about that next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, 5.10 in the City of London. A lovely evening in the City of London, I have to say. Spring has definitely sprung. The sun will be shining across the weekend. Um, we are seeing, though, rain clouds forming. I keep going with these these kind of these these weather metaphors. I've, I've got to what stop it. What is going on with you today? I don't know. I don't know. I'm feeling the joys of spring, John. It, it, it's, I've got a stinking cold, as is Marcus. Oh, have I, you? I You're not well. Any good news on the weather front, I think, is to be welcomed. Um... We've also got these comments coming through from Cecilia Malmström. She's the European Trade Commissioner. And there's this concern in Europe that the, e the US is about to, to hit us with auto tariffs. Um, and, and they're getting the reaction in kind of before that happens, basically saying, you know what, you do that, we're going we're gonna to target Caterpillar. We're going to target... We're going to target Xerox. No more photocopying. We're going to target... Um, we're going to target um, Samsonite holidays are going to be more difficult. Anyway, um, it's going to be interesting to see how this ultimately turns out. Uh, I didn't actually see much reaction in CAP today, which I thought was fascinating as well. Marcus, what do you make of this? I, are the Europeans playing, you talked about kind of Theresa May playing her cards well finally on the poker, in, in the poker game. Are the Europeans playing their cards well here? No, they're not. And by the way, I just say rather weirdly, I've just done a chart for a story coming um, next week, which said clouds clearing. Wow, is that... We are at one mind. We are, indeed, we are. Yeah, full no, um, I think in this sense they're very nervous and they're showing their nerves and uh, getting a punch in before uh, you know an expected one is is uh, often has unfortunate consequences. But you know what else can they do in the sense that they they sense that uh, uh, this is coming down the pipe once and if uh, Donald Trump gets a successful trade deal with China, the logic is he then swings his his tank uh, turret across to Europe and, um, you know, already there's been, you know, certain uh, shots fired in this sort of phony battle, but we'll, we'll get into the real, the real deal. Um, 
And I think that's that's obviously why we're seeing you know very weak manufacturing numbers again in Germany uh, in the sense of orders numbers and the PMI. This is signs that um, you know it's not just the Rhine, it's not the Dieselgate thing which is past and gone. It's continuing, and this a lot of this is is nerves that that, that tariffs are going to come. The Europeans have got to respond. Is this the right way about it? How do you deal with Donald Trump? I mean, they obviously find it impossible to deal or read, and I think they're playing his game, unfortunately. Well, let's get into that a little bit more. Guy and I were talking about this earlier in the week. We found the European response through last weekend to be totally bizarre. We have no idea what the recommendations are from Secretary Ross to the President about what to do next with European autos or auto imports more broadly, for that matter. What do you really make of it? Well, I mean, it's down to uh, Jean-Claude Juncker, who went over last year and, and sort of got a surprisingly easy win off Donald Trump. I think Donald Trump was, was just choosing to play nicely because he wanted to focus on, on an easier win from, from a bigger, more important win from with China, which he looks probably like he's going to get. Uh, whether or not it's a long-term sustainable deal, we shall see. But... Um, you know, if Juncker is proved wrong here and essentially will say he's been lied to by Donald Trump, which is what the Europeans are already mapping out, that if, if this turns out to be the case, they're going to accuse Donald Trump of lying, then you can see the sort of rhetoric's coming here, which is, which is very much throwing rocks at each other, and this will not end well. And I fear, as with China, uh, the U.S. has the upper hand here. They have, uh, you know, a, a, Donald Trump is much more recalcitrant. He doesn't have, uh, it, it seems, any, any fears at all about... Uh, Pressing various different buttons and doing some things which you know seem illogical or, or, or uh, harmful, but um, it's a breakdown of this this sort of uh, overall trust. And let's hope it doesn't spill over into NATO, because that really would be much more serious. Yeah, the the kind of the Atlanticism of a past generation in the United States certainly seems to be fading. Just come back to Europe in a little bit more detail. Um, I was talking to one investor earlier on who was suggesting that yeah, while you would expect concern about Europe from Asian investors and US investors, you're now hearing it from European investors as well, who are also worried that the the fabric of the European Union is also being put under pressure by the economic slowdown. Well, it's about time, isn't it? They wake up eventually. But I mean, yeah, I think everyone seems to have had this this mantra that oh, it's just a little slowdown. It's just a sort of cycle within the cycle. And you know, as I said, we the German numbers, PMIs. The previous day, we've seen Italian uh, orders and, and industrial sales, which were shocking. You know, this is an ongoing further weakness, which doesn't show signs of stopping, and, and there's no obvious catalyst to to correct it. Having said that, wage growth is still good, so the consumer is doing fine. Service is doing rather worryingly well. It doesn't make any sense to me. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Live across the capital on DAV Digital Radio, you are listening to Bloomberg Radio. Alongside Guy Johnson, I'm Jonathan Farrow. To wrap up some of the Friday price action for you, at the close today on the FTSE, slightly positive by a tenth of 1%. Across the continent, doing decently as well at the close. Here in the United States, through the halfway point of the trading day in New York City, the S&P 500 up by six-tenths of 1%. Guy, I'd actually like to touch on a story that I don't think has had a ton of attention, but I think is absolutely fascinating and it's Chinese officials essentially jamming up imports of Australian coal. Yeah, yeah, we were talking about this a lot yeah. yesterday. And it didn't get a lot of traction in the US, as I have some, to say, some but real, the Dalian port. Yeah. Some real speculation that Beijing is ultimately retaliating against the ban of the Chinese it's telecommunications Huawei, yeah. giant Huawei. You just wonder whether that's part of the mix here in Washington as the president tries to get his trade deal. Well... Marcus is quietly dying in the corner, so if you can hear him, um, um, we'll, we'll come back to him in just a moment. Um, let's talk. I, I, I think it's John. Also, is is very interesting to see the president's tweet 
yesterday talking about, about 5G, 5G and being and open. 6G apparently. Oh, 7G too. Yeah, and, and you have to wonder whether or not actually this is also part of the narrative um, that is going on here, that the president is looking for rapprochement on the Huawei story. Because the Chinese are clearly very sensitive about it, and I think you can you can deduce that from the from the from the coal story. Yeah, and I just wonder what track the president and the administration are going down today. I think it's going to be really interesting that yesterday we had this approach from the Chinese reportedly suggesting that they would be willing to buy thirty billion dollars of extra soybeans and agricultural products, etc. I think if your objective in these trade talks is to address the bilateral deficit, then that's an easy way of making everybody happy. If your objective in these trade talks is get the Chinese to admit that they've been conducting a policy of forced technology transfer and IP theft, I'm not so sure we're going to tackle those issues in the coming week at all, Guy. No, but I think diffusing the Huawei... I think the Huawei story has been a a thorn in the side of this whole process. And in some ways it was on a different track, but nevertheless was having some sort of an effect on the on the wider conversation. I just wonder whether or not both sides kind of want to find a way of making that go away. And I wonder whether that is what the Chinese president, whether that's what the president is hinting about in advance of this Perhaps. meeting. Perhaps. Have we got Marcus Ashworth with us? 7G is the only answer. 7G. Yeah. 7G. No one actually knows what 6G is because it doesn't exist. <laughs> the president is ahead of his time. In every sense. Yeah. What do you think um, of the two approaches potentially here, Marcus? One, just address the bilateral deficit. There's some easy wins there. Or two, go down the harder path. Well, I mean, I think it's one of the, as I said earlier about how this deal is sustainable, and this is one of the most obvious areas it will fall apart because, you know, they have to get the technology, IP, um, intellectual property sort of, sorted properly because if it's if it's just a quick fix and and then Huawei is deemed to go back to its um practices which may or may not that they may or not have done is um you know going to be a, a, a short win and, and it will fall apart very quickly so you know you really we need um a context here where Huawei is very important for companies like Deutsche Telekom i.e. the Germany's build out uh, of 4 and 5G is very much going to be dependent upon them and there's nearly almost no other option. And likewise, I think the UK you know, is taking a view that they, they can handle all this uh, just with their uh, GCHQ overlooking and making sure that they're, um, they're not putting any sort of back doors or whatever into it. So it does have to be handled. Uh, Huawei, a huge company, uh, they're a lot cheaper uh, and they have better, probably got better technologies what Donald Trump was picking up on. So... Either the US and, and people like Ericsson and, and Nokia pick up on the uh, technology or, and, and, and run with it in a, in a better and a more efficient way and catch up with Huawei, or the world is going to go on pause technologically for, for a year or two before that to happen, So, uh, or maybe more. So it's, it's actually a lot more involved here, I think, than just literally a, um, one company's fate in that sense, or, or China versus US. It, it, it really is a global issue. But it has become emblematic of of what is happening in the IP space and in the, um, I, I, I guess you could call it in, in the in the intelligence kind of space as well. And you just wonder whether or not resolving that is a big enough. How much how much face will the Chinese save if we can find a way of dealing with the Huawei story that will allow. The, the wider uh, trade story to, to function in a more easy manner. It'll be huge. It is very, very important. I wouldn't say it's the, uh, the only thing, but I think it's probably the most important thing of the trade talks to get right. And Huawei is a, you know, a big national champion in that sense. Um, and the Chinese will take one huge 
you know insult if, if it if it goes against them badly, and and secondly, if there is a you know some form of deal or rapprochement, then I think it will be massive news for, for for China. The other option I'm increasingly told that the Chinese have is just to wait Trump out, just to wait for him to leave the White House, which which strikes Oof, me as slightly risky. odd because I, yeah. I think it's risky too because there is a real bipartisan approach to way towards dealing with the Chinese at the moment. I don't really hear much pushback from the Democrats whatsoever. Well, it's the one obvious vote winner for Donald Trump. Um, it's him enacting his um, election sort of manifesto, should we say, uh, in, in large and in the raw. And I, I think uh, Democratic silence is, is deafening in that sense because they know that they, if they were to alternate view, that they will get uh, badly trounced um, by, the, by the president for it. So, no, we're not hearing anything because they don't really have any response to it. If this meeting goes well today, um, is that risk on? I think so. And the fact the meeting is, is happening is, you know, hedge funds don't wait around to be told. You know, they, they read through the, yeah. in the lines and, and very much so. I think uh, uh, it would be risk on. And I think this is not going to solve German manufacturing or Italian manufacturing overnight, but it might uh, it might have a big impact on China. And that will that will filter through the rest of the world because we are in a global manufacturing recession, whether it's down to the trade talks, you know, spat with China or its other causal effects, it's too early for us still to tell. But certainly it would uh, greatly lift uh, the sentiment and confidence, which is behind um, you know, half, the, half the battle, as they say. Um, I personally think there's a bit more uh, underlying problems, which we'll, we'll not see quite a huge uh, reversal of, every, of all the losses we've seen. But um, it's certainly it's a, a, a big and much-needed win. Marcus, always great to Will get be. your thoughts. Have a great weekend. Feel better. Thank you. Marcus Ashworth, Bloomberg Opinion columnist there, joining He's us out of London. Honey in the studio. You see, yeah. I do that every morning. <laughs> Bit of hot water, some honey. Up next on the programme, we'll run you through the potential for a deal on the trade front and what it means for markets too, the potential fallout for financial markets globally and cross-asset. That's coming up next. You're listening to The Cable, live from London and New York. This is Bloomberg Radio. When I'm lonely, well, I know I'm going to be I'm gonna be the man who's lonely without you This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio Good evening. It is half past five on a Friday evening here in London. The S&P is up by six-tenths of one percent. Uh, the big story from a stock point of view out of the United States has been Kraft Heinz. Let's catch up with the latest headlines. Here's Charlie Pellet. And I thank you very much. Developing story, big story in the United States in terms of American football. Police in Florida have charged New England Patriots owner Robert Kraft with a, <coughs> excuse me, you okay, Charlie? I'm, I'm doing fine here. Misdemeanor solicitation you know of prostitution. This happened to Luke Cower this time last week. Luke literally sat there coughing his guts up. Guy wasn't here. I had five minutes on the clock <laughs> and, and nowhere to go. So right. I was at home coughing and we've just had Marcus Ashworth coughing. I'm not sure you can catch things down a radio do you know, wire. So do you, know, do you know what I had to do? talk for five minutes. Uh, you're you kidding me. Yeah. Which, which very luckily, well qualified. Uh, uh, luckily, <laughs> I was going to say the same thing, Guy. Luckily, wanna, not a problem. Do you want to know the record? The record of talking. Which is? Guy and I, for about I reckon 15 minutes plus, with someone in our ear telling us when Boris Johnson was going to arrive oh my goodness. outside the old headquarters. Do you right. remember that, Guy? Yeah. 
yeah. and they just said stretch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you're good stretch. for three minutes, and then after yeah. that. All right, so let me just bring you up to date because I'm very excited and uh, big news in the United States here. Police in Florida have charged New England Patriots owner Robert Kraft with a misdemeanor solicitation of prostitution, saying they have videotape of him paying for a sex act inside an illicit massage parlor. Jupiter Police uh, told reporters today that the 77-year-old Kraft has not been arrested. A warrant, though, will be issued, and his attorneys will be notified. Uh, The Patriots, by the way, won the Super Bowl earlier this month in Atlanta. The team did not immediately respond to requests for comment. The German magazine Der Spiegel says the European Commission is investigating the five car makers, including Renault and Peugeot maker PSA Group, for possible antitrust violations on car parts. It did not say where it got that information. And European Union Trade Commissioner Cecilia Malmström says a transatlantic trade deal could be achieved before year-end, stressing a readiness to work speedily as the bloc tries to keep at bay the threat of U.S. automotive tariffs. Latest from the news desk, Jonathan Farrow, back to you. Thank you very much. Charlie Pellet, Luke Cower is with us. Luke, theme of the last couple of days for me, and we caught up with a couple of people, Guy and I did yesterday about this, and I spoke to you about it this morning. A lot of people trying to figure out what to do with the weekend's news if we get some positive breakthrough around trade. What do you do with markets? Do you fade the strength? I I mean, as as we spoke this morning, it ha- my view hasn't changed since then, but, uh, you know, still reason to be a little scared. I, I think a lot of this, you know, it kind of screams fade. And the reason why is that if you look at the, you know, the proxies that are most sensitive to this, whether, you know, industrials generally, or if you look at, you know, China stocks with a lot of U.S. sales or U.S. stocks with a lot of China sales, all of those have been outperforming pretty in a pretty big way since the Buenos Aires original trade truce came in so like we've gotten ahead of ourselves we've priced in a lot of good news on this front already is i i think the way the thinking goes with this yeah it's interesting i i guess we need to think about causality here what we've also got and what i'm what i'm increasingly hearing is a is a situation where actually equity markets are beginning to run into technical levels there's kind of other factors as well that are coming in there's a kind of there's a there's a whole range of factors that are coming together that may be signaling particularly to the algo guys okay enough is enough maybe we start to fade this rally and that just uh, and that's not including the trade stuff so i just wonder whether we're going to find ourselves in a situation where you get good trade news as Luke says, a lot of it's been priced in, but actually the technicals just point to the fact that actually this market is, is a little overripe and as a result of which maybe is going to drop as well. So it's going to be interesting to see how the mix works here. That's kind of where I landed on Wednesday, like when we got the, the Fed minutes and then just had this, you know, whipsaw move and we're searching for reasons, you know, why why would we sell up on the Fed minutes? You know, they indicate some openness to a hike, but, you know, come on, they're still going to you know want to hike if things go well. They're not going to say they're cutting rates immediately in response to, you you know, a, uh, a market meltdown and a slight softening and kind of the the global outlook. And that to me kind of screams that, you know, we're just in these waters in that 2790 to 2810 area in the S&P 500, where we had three interme- uh, intermediate peaks after the all time high we reached in stocks on September 20th. It's just we're, we're going to be looking for reasons to sell probably or to go sideways until yeah. there's something that's big enough to really break through. You know, it's been really interesting and I think hasn't got much attention. Luke, I know you've been on top of it. That's why I'm going to bring this up. The little price action that we've had in treasuries, we've actually got a decent move today. Yields coming in five basis points to 264 on a 10-year. But basically, if you look at the weekly close all the way back to the beginning of this year, 
266 last week, 263 the week before that, 268 the week before that, all the way back to the start of the year where we opened the year, the first closing session, we closed at 267. Luke, what just what explains just the, the rapid decline in volatility of treasuries and what's the signal there and ultimately the implications and the consequences of it? So the I, I think the, the best takeaway or best rationalization of this is, you know, a return to a secular stagnation type backdrop. Nobody thinks the bond market is going to be their enemy because nobody thinks the Fed is going to be the, their enemy. And nobody thinks the Fed is going to be their enemy because nobody expects inflation to pick up in a big way. So it's it's not just that inflation is low around the world. It's just also that the volatility, the elements within inflation, the volatility of those are also extremely low. So when you combine those factors, you have the term premium, which is generally the extra compensation demanded for going out the curve. We should really start calling this the term discount. It's been persistently yeah. negative for very, very long. When you put that together, it means that bond volatility is expected to be very low. Both the move index and tenure treasury volatility at are, are at pretty, pretty low levels. And treasury volatility it's it's at the heart of everything when you look at any option pricing there's an element of rate volatility that's baked into that so you know when treasury vol is low it's going to suppress vol uh, across every single asset class and that's kind of what's helped facilitate risk taking this year it's been quite a good month i'm just i, I i'm thinking about the end of the month is there a month end effect that we could be thinking about right now Probably I'm not. I'm not the best month end guy. I just rely on Cameron Christ to tell me what what'll be happening at, at month end, and I, I think he's taking the week off. So we we gotta we gotta find someone to tell <laughs> Actually, us what uh, pension funds I will be doing. I didn't realize that. Is is he off sick or is he taking vacation? I, I think much much deserved vacation. I believe. Good for him. Cameron Christ, I've missed him this week. How have you really? You just noticed. I just. just <laughs> <laughs> I think it's probably half term, isn't it? I don't know. Does it? Did you, what do you call that over there? What was the equivalent of half term? Oh, Kids taking time off? Just whatever it is. You guys are probably the two worst people to ask about this because <laughs> no neither idea. of you are Americans. Well, whenever Tom takes time off, which is in March, right? So I think that's spring break. Spring break, then college. We called it reading week, but you didn't Winter do recess. reading. You didn't do reading. any reading. Winter recess. <laughs> Apparently, is that what it's called? I don't know if that's a half term thing. I, we over here we obviously call it half term. Halfway through the the Easter term, you take that you have a week off. So all the kids have been off this week. Basically, there's been tons of them here at Bloomberg, which is quite entertaining. Yeah, yeah. Spring spring break, spring recess is what we we called it back in uh, back in Canada land at least. Canada land, as if it's some far away, distant country that no one has ever visited. Canada land. <laughs> When's the last time you visited? Do you know what? Someone <laughs> someone someone once referred to it as Canada, which I thought was hilarious. Yep. Canadian. It's cold there, though, isn't it? So not so much of a spring break, I would have thought, in Canadian land yet. Um, let's uh, talk about what we're going to be focusing on next. We probably need to continue our conversation around what's happening with the trade story. Uh, we probably also need to probably get an idea of what's going on with Kraft Heinz as well. That stock being absolutely dumped today. Uh, and it's interesting, the Warren Buffett story is going to be uh, certainly one that people are going to focus on over the weekend. Uh, a man with a lot of cash on the portfolio, how's he going to be investing it? Maybe we'll focus on that next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You are listening to The Cable. Uh, we are, what, 5.40 in the city of London. European trade is over. US trade is not. 
Uh, and while equity markets are trading a little bit higher, Kraft Heinz is having a very, very bad day. Out with a briefing last night, uh, and that briefing was a pretty testy one as well. The numbers came out and then they had the call, uh, and analysts seemed to get more and more frustrated as that call progressed. Remember, this is a business uh, that has been invested in by the Investment House 3G, the private equity business, along with Warren Buffett. They have similar investments as well. Well, 3G has similar investments in, in other businesses uh, like AB InBev, which fell quite strongly uh, on the London market as well. The concern seems to be, certainly one of the concerns seems to be, uh, that cost cutting, that you can't cost cut to the degree that 3G's model suggests without severely damaging brand. Uh, and that seems to be what is underway here. John Ferrer, I was uh, on surveillance a little bit earlier on the TV version of surveillance, and Tom Keane was getting very excited about Kraft cheese. I can't remember what it was called. Uh, it's Vel- Oh, it's he's been banging Velveeta. on about this. Velveeta. Vel- what is it called? Velveeta. Yeah, yeah I've never tried it. Honest, he grew honest, up. He it. was so animated when he came into the radio studio. He was laying into his mum, yeah, who, in who a big co- way. Who, who couldn't cook apparently, <laughs> and just went into the fridge and got him this terrible cheese. Yeah, but it's a it's a cheese when you're a kid that you like think is the good cheese, and then you grow <laughs> up and eat like any other cheese and realize you know what you've been doing. The the vel apparently it means it's velvety. That's what. Oh, they... interesting. Yeah. Um. Anyway. Luke, um, I, does this I, Warren Buffett? I, I, what I'm fascinated about here is is the Warren Buffett kind of model. So Warren Buffett invested in this business. Warren Buffett has this kind of long term investment strategy, and I've always slightly questioned whether or not the kind of the three G cost cutting model kind of sits comfortably with that. Are we starting to see the Warren Buffett model being being called into question here? We're starting to see this partnership more than the Warren Buffett model, I think, be called into question. And it's actually great because I'll, I'll point you back to there. We, we had a great heads up on this, I think, from another 3G investment in which they pursued cost cutting and really hurt the brand. And it's something that's near and dear to my heart. Tim Hortons combined with Burger Kings. Uh, and so the the restaurant brands international tim hortons in in canada it's you know when you're suffering loyalty concerns in canada and you're that brand because of how costs have been cut and how quality has gone down that's probably a sign that you know the longevity of such a model is limited with with buffett and Kraft heinz in particular i i think craig uh, giamona kind of puts it perfectly when this is a bit of an existential crisis for the company because it's about you know it's about the brand it's about weakness in the brand yeah. and now some people are kind of speculating that maybe this will make it easier or maybe this you know this fall off in the stock price will make buffett want to buy it more i think this is a fundamental misunderstanding of what warren buffett does he buys things with a moat and he lets managers run their businesses he does not come in and try to fix businesses he comes in and provides financing to businesses who are in dire straits and kind of, you know, your home capital, another Canada story would be a great example of that, or Goldman during the crisis. But when he's taking equity stakes, it's because he thinks you run the business well. It feels like yesterday, to be honest with you, but it was actually back in 2017 when Kraft Heinz tried to buy Unilever. Yeah, yeah. yeah and guy, what I've been it grappling does feel like with... yesterday, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, it's funny. It's actually quite a long time ago now. But what's interesting about that is that I wonder whether this episode makes it more or less likely that they need to go out and do a big deal again. Because ultimately what this tie-up is good at is slashing costs and finding efficiencies. And I guess they need to find some more size to do that, Guy. So there's still this argument out there that they need a big deal. 
Maybe. I, the, a lot of the analyst comment that I read today suggested that they would struggle to convince people that that was a good idea um, because the model that they have enacted thus far, I think they call it zero, I can't, it's, it's, it's a zero budget kind of yeah. mentality that they use, hasn't, hasn't worked particularly well. And Luke was giving us a couple of other examples as well in terms of brand management. And you just therefore wonder whether or not yeah. there is a a belief that that is a that, that is a model that that while it could still deliver synergies in the short term, actually would deliver value in the long term. Well, we're continuing the conversation. Up next on the program, we're going to bring you an interview with an analyst on Kraft Heinz, Luke Cowart. Thank you very much. This is the Cable. This is the Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable, live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio alongside Guy Johnson in the city. I'm Jonathan Farrow here in New York. Just to wrap up some of the price action for you this Friday, a better close on the FTSE, just a little bit. We're up a tenth of 1%. We had a bit of weight to the equity benchmark in Frankfurt, Germany, up a third of 1%. Here in the United States, the S&P 500, through the halfway point of the trading day, up by six tenths of 1% on the S&P, up a little bit more on the tech-heavy Nasdaq, up by three quarters of 1% there and on the Dow, up by 0.66%. There is one big mover to discuss, which is not weighing on this index at all because it's only about a tenth of 1% of the weighting of the S&P 500. It's Kraft Heinz and it's down and it's down hard by around about 27%. A little bit more on that in just a little bit. Elsewhere in the bond market, the situation as follows for you. Treasury yields coming in five basis points to 2.64%. On a two-year note, we come in Four basis points to 2.48%. And as yields grind lower and equity markets melt up, the VIX just bleeds a little bit lower. We grind down to a 13 handle. We're down a half a point on the VIX to 13.91. Cross asset vol has been absolutely destroyed over the first couple of months of this year. And if you're not expecting big swings in a market, that's fertile ground for risk assets. It just encourages people to come into the market and add a little bit more risk. Outside of that, in the FX market, the state of things as follows. The score shaping up like this. The dollar weaker against everything in G10 as we get a slew of Fed speakers through the day here in New York and into next week as well. You're going to hear from Clarida and Chairman Powell next week. Chairman Powell will be delivering his semi-annual testimony. So the dollar weaker against all of that. The euro firmer by a tenth of 1%. The pound up by about two tenths of 1%. So let's get back to our top corporate story today. The packaged food giant Kraft Heinz taking a $15.4 billion charge to write down assets that include some of its best-known brands such as Oscar Mayer. It's an acknowledgement that changing consumer tastes have destroyed the value of some of Kraft's most iconic products. I managed to catch up with an analyst on the stock, Scott Mushkin. Take a listen to what he had to say. You know, I mean, I think it's tough. I think the uh, the summary that was provided before I got on was, was you know, was kind of correct. I mean, our outlook on food manufacturing has been very bearish, and we wake up this morning with some egg on our face that we actually were recommending Kraft Heinz as one of the bigger bears on the street on food manufacturing. And the problem with food manufacturing, generally speaking, is it's just off trend. I mean, we we've written a lot about the pure foods trend and the fact that consumers don't really want to uh, eat packaged food anymore. Packaged Food might as well be a four-letter word, um, but you also have the private label trend that's that's very uh, significant. Something we call the craft beer trend, where consumers want to experiment with local products or products from overseas. All these trends are very bad for packaged food, generally speaking, but crystallized for Kraft Heinz in the quarter. Um, now. 
the good news, and one of the things that we think is misunderstood about Kraft Heinz a little bit, is definitely the 3G model is one of cutting costs. But the company has done a lot of work to renovate and innovate its brands. They've done tremendous amount of work on the Oscar Mayer brand that they just wrote down. They got all of the fillers out, all the chemicals out. They brought out a natural line. Uh, they repackaged it. It's just not working. I mean, that's just the bottom line, even though they've done a lot to improve that business. So, Scott, is this Kraft Heinz or is this an industry problem? And who's next? I mean, there was clearly some specific issues here with the SEC looking into some of their accounting, um, you know, cutting of the dividend. Uh, but, but the industry is just definitely challenged. I mean, I think this is probably the third or fourth food name. We had Conagra have very significant miss and guide down. Um, so it's not just Kraft Heinz. And as we've been writing uh, um, constantly, the industry is definitely under threat by some of these mega trends. Um, but clearly Kraft has some issues uh, unto itself. Uh, that they're trying to work through. So, Scott, it feels like yesterday, but it was actually back in 2017 when this company tried to acquire Unilever. Can we assume that those big deals aren't going to happen anytime soon? That's just such a great question because we need the deals. Okay, you're yeah. in a, you are in a industry that has very significant structural headwinds, and one of the things that you could do to try to offset these is you know put some of these companies together. Campbell's um, obviously also a company that's struggling. You know, we thought maybe the family would just kind of throw in with the Kraft Heinz people and say, hey, you know, let's do a stock exchange, and but. You know, they want a premium. The industry needs consolidation desperately because of the trends, but also don't forget Walmart. Walmart is 30% of some of these guys' volumes. They, they carry a big stick at this, uh, at this stage and are much bigger from a revenue perspective. We need mergers, and we're not getting them. And that's part of the problem with Kraft Heinz. They really need to be a consolidator, and they haven't been able to do it. Scott, just finally, I want you to help our audience with something. Can you take us inside your industry on the south side as a researcher, as an analyst that has to put ratings on companies like this? What we sometimes see on a morning like this morning with the stock gapping lower by 25% is some analysts come out and recommend to sell after the gap lower has already happened. Scott, can you just inform us the thinking that you have when you wake up with a surprise like this, you've got an overrating on the overweight rating on the stock, what you do, what the process you go through is to come out ultimately with the next move? Yeah, I mean, I think the process is, is you got to play the game that's in front of you. In other words, clearly, as I said, we got egg on our face, but you can't just be reactionary. You have to look at a new set of, the new set of facts, the new reality, and then take into account do you think the company can outperform from the new base. Um, hey, been doing this almost 30 years, 20 years as an analyst. This happens. I mean, it happens to people's portfolios when you have a company blow up. But you need to kind of take a step back and not be emotional and just say, okay, with what we know today, what will we do? Um, and that's the process we go through, um, you know, if, if, even if the stock's working and we have a home run. Um, so that's the process. Uh, and, you know, you've got to kind of just take stock, you know, look at our pricing surveys, look at our store visits, and, and see where we think the, the equity can go from here. Um, you know, it's, it's trading in line with the industry now, but the industry is, is from evaluation, but it's, you know, it's a very very difficult industry. We still believe craft is best in class. Okay, that was uh, the uh, the conversation surrounding craft. It's tough to be a sell side analyst on days like today. Craft is currently trading at thirty five 
0.05 over in the States. It's trading down by 27%. You did see a ripple effect today into the likes of Racket Benkies are in London and in Unilever and in AB InBev as well. Uh, US markets, though, are broadly positive. We're waiting news on the trade deal. We have this big meeting coming up a little bit later on in Washington. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg. 